Well, welcome to the ninth in our series of COVID-19 podcasts. The topic of this podcast is long COVID. It's a recent term entering our vernacular, and it's basically a term to describe illness in people who've recovered from COVID-19, but who are still reporting lasting effects. They're prolonged, fluctuating and debilitating symptoms in many cases. Many people, including doctors um, who have been infected, have shared their anecdotal experiences on social media and in the traditional media and through patient organisations and groups. Dr Jake Suet is one of those people who's experienced issues post-COVID and it was through social media that I connected with Jake. He's an intensive care doctor and I'm delighted to welcome Jake to this podcast to talk about his experiences of long COVID. Thanks so much for joining me, Jake. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Well, look, Jake, you know, let's sit back, relax and take people through a little bit of your journey. Um, let's start. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and, and where you were when you think you contracted COVID-19? So uh, I'm an intensive care and anaesthetics staff grade doctor. I was working in Kings Lynn in the middle of March. Uh, I was just about to start a new job in Australia, actually. So I was about three weeks away from flying to Adelaide uh, when the virus hit. And uh, for a couple of weeks at work, I'd been uh, working with lots of patients that had confirmed COVID-19. Um, I've been involved in uh, intubating a few patients. Um, so plenty of occupational exposure, but obviously I was also still going to do my shopping at Sainsbury's and things like that. So I, I don't really know uh, exactly where it happened, but I think there was plenty of opportunities for it to happen. And uh, on the 20th of March, I sort of had a, a sore throat and just felt quite tired, a bit strange, a bit kind of how you feel before you get a cold. But I sort of thought it didn't fit into the, the symptoms that we were being told about at the time uh, of a dry cough, fevers uh, or shortness of breath. But over the next week, I started to become short of breath at night time first, um, still without the cough or fevers, but by day eight, uh, I was starting to have daytime shortness of breath and a dry cough had started and I started to feel warm to touch. Um, by the 10th day, I was absolutely gasping for breath. I was laying prone on my bed with a very high respiratory rate couldn't sleep, it felt awful, and uh, I thought that I should probably go and get checked out at A&E. Um, I'm very glad to say my SATs were normal, my chest x-ray looked normal, uh, but my blood test showed that some kind of inflammation was going on, my neutrophils were raised, my ALT, which is a liver blood test, was raised, um, and my thyroid um, thyroid function tests were deranged. So it all fitted in with uh, a viral illness. And obviously in the context of my work and the symptoms that I was having, uh, we presumed that I had COVID-19. So thankfully I came home, uh, started to improve for a couple of days, didn't ever go back to normal. 
but started to try to rebuild my um, exercise again. And after a few days of doing that, I started to go backwards in terms of my shortness of breath. And I had uh, a very scary and new left-sided cardiac type chest pain to me. Um, and since then, that's been the ongoing issues I've faced. I've, I've had shortness of breath, chest pain. They've all improved over the last five months. I've had ongoing low-grade temperatures up to about 37.8 uh, every day. Um, I've had palpitations. My heart rate's sometimes been very low, around 40, 45, sometimes very high at 110, just at rest. And I've had quite a lot of these other um, maybe neurocognitive symptoms that people have been talking about. Slowly seems to be improving, but very strange, profound waves of fatigue. I don't feel fatigued all the time, but certainly a month or two months ago, I could be standing up, washing, uh, washing up, and it felt as though this wave of fatigue was descending over me and it would just clear again after an hour or two. Um, difficulty um, structuring my thoughts in the same way that I used to be able to and um, just sometimes struggling to find the right words. I've seen other people report very strange emotional responses, some people just bursting into tears. I actually remember quite vividly, uh, the, almost the opposite of, of week five when I was recovering. Uh, I remember I was watching The Inbetweeners, which I do think is a funny program, but I was laughing my head off on my own on the sofa. And it really struck me that it felt bizarre given that I couldn't breathe, that I was just cackling my head off on the sofa. Um, so that those are the symptoms that I've had. Um, I was tested in week four with a, a PCR swab and that came back negative. Um, and I was tested at week 12 with an antibody test and that also came back negative. And again, this seems to be one of the uh, big issues that lots of people with these uh, symptoms are experiencing. Um, we know that the timing of the PCR tests are important, but there's a risk of false negatives and that the antibody tests have been um, calibrated predominantly in the hospitalized cohort. So I think this is a big part of the problem that people are experiencing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how are you today? How, how are things for you today? Well, I have to say, I think the trajectory has been steady improvement for me, but with regular setbacks. So the fact that the recovery isn't linear makes you feel very precarious and you do wonder why and how can this still be happening. But I have probably had my best week this week since being ill. So I'm very optimistic um, that things might improve. But as things stand today, I just feel slightly short of breath if I walk. Um, flight of stairs will make me short of breath, but thankfully now at rest, I'm not particularly short of breath. The chest pain has improved. I still don't feel as cognitively sharp as I was before. So that is now becoming more of, uh, of an issue, but I think that's because 
compared to the other issues improving, it's easier for me to notice now that my uh, thoughts don't seem to be quite as clear as they used to be. Mm. So I, obviously, I mean, I think uh, most people would agree that you, you were very much presenting clinically. So in person as someone who contracted COVID-19. And I'm just wondering um, what you think the implications are for people and how you felt when, despite two tests um, coming back negative, you know, did this put doubt in your mind? I mean, so, so I'm trying to think from my perspective, if they came back positive, that would be, a, there would be a sense of validation for me that I would know, um, mm. oh, that's definitely what I had. And I think sometimes when we get these negative tests, uh, you know, and, and it, you're quite right, they absolutely could be false negatives for a variety of reasons that can put, that can have an impact on how people perceive their situation. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that at all for people who are perhaps in a similar situation who are listening to this podcast. I think it's uh, I think it's a really interesting topic to see how things have developed over the last five or six months as well. Um, we all know that this virus is new, and I think it's been really interesting to see how society, medicine, the media, the public have been able to cope <clears throat> or manage um, emerging knowledge about a new virus and so i feel as though certainly at the time of having those tests i felt as though uh well surely i haven't had it really in that case if the tests are saying i haven't had it the narrative in the media at the time was quite different to how it is now the uh the medical literature was quite different to how it is now and I think what's happened is that slowly uh, through kind of lived experience. So I've seen it because I have many colleagues that I work with who have either tested positive for PCR and then negative on antibody or vice versa. So there's various ways that people have uh, come to this new knowledge about the the capabilities of the tests, I think, through kind of lived experience, sharing stories amongst colleagues and and on social media. I think uh, the media have started to report on this. You know, I've seen very good pieces in in the Wall Street Journal, for example. Uh, the New Scientist have, have covered this, and you know, increasingly now. Um, there's a BMJ paper that came out on, uh, I think it was on Wednesday, about managing post-acute COVID-19 in primary care. Mm -hmm. And that makes it very clear um, under the definitions of what post-acute COVID-19 is, uh, that there were issues around testing and that there are issues around false negatives. So I think it's certainly becoming clear, but it's just taken a lot of time. And I think it does mean that people that have had experiences with negative tests or positive tests have gone through a kind of an interesting journey uh, with uh, the scientists, with doctors, with the media, as we've learned more. 
So, I mean, I guess I'm curious, what, what worries you most about your ongoing situation? Hmm. I think, I think one of the most difficult things about this situation is the uncertainty. I think with almost any other disease that I can think of, uh, we have some expectation as to what the natural history will be. Uh, and so you could be given a very awful diagnosis. There's lots of horrible diseases out there. But in general, people can say to you, you have this likelihood of recovery or this is what we anticipate will happen. And you can start to um, plan your life around those expectations, whether or not that's, you know, what you want to share with family, with friends. Um, so sort of social aspects of being unwell economic aspects of, of being unwell. Um, those sorts of things at the moment are very difficult to plan for. And I think that's what I find most difficult. But also I think part of the problem is the context, the global context that we're experiencing these symptoms in. So not only are we faced with uncertainty as to whether or not will we get better, um, are we still contagious to other people, for example? But the context of an economic crisis, many people dying in ITU, um, many people trying to deal with different challenges at a kind of societal level, medical level, does mean that I think there's an added fear that this is not going to be addressed as it would be addressed in normal circumstances too. So I think the two the two big problems are the uncertainty and the sort of the general state of the world at the moment whilst trying to to cope with these scary symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing you haven't returned to work yet. Um, what what do you think that pathway looks like yeah um because i was about to go to australia i was actually uh locoming as well so i actually have been living off my savings for, for five months now so i really do need to start earning some money soon and i would love to go back to anesthetics and intensive care it's something that i love doing it's a fantastic job but I can now maybe be on my feet for about two hours before uh, the shortness of breath and the chest pain and things like that comes back. I'm not thinking as clearly as I was before. I don't think it would be good for me or for my patients for me to go back and do 12 hour shifts in ITU, for example. So I hope that I carry on improving and that I can start to have a kind of phased return back to work. Uh, in some form, but I'm also having to start thinking about how else I could earn some money from uh, either retraining in other things or working from home in some format. But yeah, the uncertainty around that is is very difficult to manage. 
Have, have you met um, any other people such as colleagues or, or patients? I know we're going to come on to some of the online relationships, but have you met any kind of colleagues or, or other people that have had similar complications to yourself post COVID? Yeah. Um, there's people who uh, have spoken publicly about um, their illness. So people like Paul Garner, um, and uh, other doctors that have, have written in the BMJ, like uh, Nizreen Alwan, and um, people like Claire Rayner and her colleagues who have blogged in the BMJ. And I've been able to kind of talk with them and find some solidarity there. I also know of colleagues where I work who have had similar problems, but they haven't talked about them publicly. So, you know, with with that in mind, you know, it's certainly not the majority of people. It looks to me as though from my experience of seeing what's happened to my ITU and anaesthetic colleagues, it's correct to say that the vast majority of people do seem to recover fully. But I think there is a significant minority of people who have some lingering symptoms. Um, my colleagues that I'm aware of have been able to go back to work, but they are still getting symptoms of shortness of breath and other problems. So I think there's a spectrum of people affected, but it's certainly a considerable minority of people who are being left with, with the prolonged recovery. Mm. I was reading um, uh, a couple of articles, some of which you've just mentioned, um, and one struck me, which was long COVID patients being described as the unrecorded um, what, what does that mean and what are the implications of that, do you think? I think this is probably referring to the pieces by Nizreen Orwan. She's written an excellent blog in the BMJ and uh, she's also written an article in, in Nature. And I think this is looking at the epidemiological aspect of what's happening to people. And... By that, I think what I would say is at the moment, you look at the, the data that's generally reported and we talk about deaths from COVID-19, um, but we don't talk about people having other complications afterwards. We, there's no statistics being collected as to how many people have been left with shortness of breath afterwards or how many people are unable to work afterwards. And I think that the argument there is that if we don't measure those things, we will not have uh, a realistic picture of the consequences of allowing uh, this virus to spread through the population. Uh, I think it's important that we inform people that there are other risks other than death. And I think that's likely to help public health measures as well, because young people at the moment have been left with um, a perception that they're pretty safe from this virus and so I think the issue is moving these stories from anecdote into objective scientific evidence and I think that's so important because we can't just rely on anecdote I completely agree with that and I think that's a, a very important argument for why we need epidemiological studies. I don't think it's okay to sort of, uh, you know, the problem is that there aren't 
the studies. It's, it's not the other way around. The absence of evidence doesn't prove that there isn't a problem, if that makes sense. So I think it's a strong call for a, a scientific approach to quantifying the problem. Um, I mean, you mentioned research there, and I think as it is with everything COVID-19, you know, research is still very much in its infancy for, you know, um, uh, around many things um, to do with the virus. But are you aware of any research which is being undertaken into long COVID at all? So, um, you know, from an epidemiological point of view, you have Tim Spector's um, symptom tracker app, and that's giving a signal that you know about one in ten people are having symptoms beyond one month and that a very significant number are still having symptoms after three months so i think that's a good start but obviously there's some bias in terms of who would use an app and retainment in the app and things like that so i think it gives an indication that there's a problem um, but I think a proper epidemiological study needs to be run alongside that. In terms of other research, there is the, the FOSP COVID study that's being run uh, from the University of Leicester. But my understanding of that is that that is going to be looking at hospitalized uh, patients only. I think what I hope with that is that there may still be a portion of those cases that represent the same type of pathology that the community cases are seeing. So it may still help understand what's happening, but I also think that it's not beyond the realms of possibility that a different host uh, pathogen interaction that means that you don't end up in hospital at the start of your illness but means that you have persisting symptoms could be what is responsible for what's happening to these patients. And so I think by having a study that excludes community cases, um, you're possibly risking missing uh, one particular phenotype of the disease, if you like. Um, and certainly there's a, a study being carried out uh, in the United States at uh, University uh, of California, San Francisco, uh, called the LINK study. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but that is going to be a longer term study, which does look at anybody who's had a positive uh, test. So I think, you know, there's hope in that there are some studies starting to look at this. We may get answers from international studies. Hopefully the FOSS COVID study would also be of use, but I think it would be really excellent if that was expanded to include the community cohort. Yeah, no, I think that's um, an important point. And I 100% agree with you on the need for epidemiological studies and also the inclusion of these community patients and not just people who were hospitalised. Um, so I guess, you know, do you have any sense of, you know, what you think the knock-on effect um, is going to be for general practitioners and family doctors? Uh, going forward because you know my hunch is that people many people like yourself are going to be presenting with these long COVID symptoms and my experience in encephalitis when people present with these ongoing 
sometimes subtle or could be described, you know, in, in comparison to a, an acutely unwell person, sometimes subtle, some, sometimes quite nuanced um, problems. You know, what, what are your thoughts around the challenges for, for primary care? Yeah, I think it's a very difficult um, area because, you know, there's various different things going on and, and, and interplaying here because, as, as we mentioned, the state of our knowledge about the virus has moved a long way since February, uh, where we were expecting a respiratory illness, essentially. And so I think GPs have had an extremely difficult job to try and keep services running, uh, to try and adapt to the virus, um, to try to uh, manage the difficulties of a new um, illness. And I think that one of the problems with these persisting symptoms is it's affecting enough of the population that there's a pattern emerging that it's, it's happening, but it's not affecting so many people such that most general practitioners may only have seen one or two cases like this perhaps um, in the BMJ paper this week uh, the authors estimated that there might be perhaps six patients with, with these long symptoms per practice in the UK so you know that obviously the number may be higher but it it gives you an indication that for each GP perhaps there will only be one or two cases that they've uh, seen. And so I think it's quite hard for them to build a picture of the, the condition without having these epidemiological studies. I think it's kind of, it's very difficult for them to act in advance of the evidence when they've only got experience of one or two cases. So I think the, the paper this week is very welcome because it starts to give uh, a kind of framework for GPs to be able to work with and you know I hope that perhaps even if they were able to code for this type of pathology that might even open the doors to other epidemiological studies using GP data for example so I think there's lots of opportunities there and then one of the other things that people have spoken about is um, the idea of having a kind of centralized post-covid clinic and that could be in a kind of a tertiary center you know it could be a kind of a re referral network um, you've also got the website your your covid recovery so i think that is um kind of gives gps a way of directing people but that does seem very focused on exercise and rehabilitation and it does make it clear that if your symptoms are getting worse or not improving, you need to go back to your GP. And I think that's where I've got some friends who are GPs, for example, who I, who I went to medical school with and, and they've been in touch. And they've been saying to me that that website's welcome, but when patients do come back and say, well, my symptoms are getting worse or they're not getting better, there still isn't anywhere else for them to send those patients. So I think establishing uh, kind of specialist post-COVID clinics is probably the way to go forward here because you then have clinicians who develop expertise in the condition, build up pattern recognition, 
you know, access to multidisciplinary um, specialties. So you can have a neurologist, you can have a cardiologist, you can have a, a respiratory physician. Um, I think that's going to be the way forwards. And I think uh, that that's starting to emerge now. Mm. Just I'm listening to you talk, you know, and you were talking earlier about wanting to return to your profession, but but also conscious that that might not be um, uh, possible. Um, I, th I think um, you're already identifying your next job. I think Jake is going to lead some of this. That's that's my instinct. <laughs> but <We'll see>. um, <laughs> you certainly stood out on social media. That's how we ended up uh, talking with each other. But um, you talked about your COVID recovery there. And I I'm conscious that there have been some other forces mobilising on social media around long COVID. Um, what are they trying to achieve and are there one or two resources or campaigns that you would recommend to any viewers who are similarly affected? Um, so are you asking about the aims of the Your Covid Recovery website or the aims of the sort of other social media groups you mean? Yeah just um, not so much the your COVID, it's just that's what made um, the thought pop into my mind was when you, you mentioned um, that resource um, for people. So it got me wondering, having seen you on social media, whether there were any other resources or campaigns that you would recommend for people who were in a similar situation to yourself? Yeah. Uh, well, I've certainly found uh, a kind of support network, if you like, um, amongst one of the groups called longcovid.org so they have uh, a website and uh, there are some resources on there uh, that have been very helpful but they also have a facebook group and uh, that's that's almost got 16,000 members in it now but certainly uh, during the early days of of my illness when i really i didn't know that anybody else was having these problems initially until I saw um, Paul Garner's blog in the BMJ. And after that, I joined a few of the Facebook groups that he mentioned in his blog. And that really, I think, helped me to retain my sanity because I, I really didn't know if, if anyone else was having, having these problems. And the, the one that I've found most helpful is, is the longcovid.org. Uh, one uh, there's a very supportive atmosphere um sharing of of scientific articles in there but in a kind of non-sensationalist way um so i think that one's been the best one for me mm. i mean obviously i'm a little bit biased um being the chief executive of the encephalitis society but i think you're absolutely right i think uh, people underestimate the the power of some of these patient organizations particularly the what you know the ones that are run well and run responsibly um, that are evidence-based and um, i think you know i heard um, a lot in what you just said there um, that we hear you know every day from the encephalitis patients that we work with who suddenly find us and the encephalitis society and that sense of validation and the reduction in the sense of isolation and loneliness that they're feeling um, is so important for people so that's a great resource for people and i'd also just mention if if that's all right um the sepsis trust have uh, a support phone line and uh they've 
made it very clear to us as a group that they are happy for their sepsis nurses to support people who have had these persisting symptoms of COVID, even if they weren't admitted to hospital, uh, even if they weren't admitted to ITU. And uh, the feedback I've had from people who have phoned them, I've phoned them as well. They've really understood the problems that, that we're experiencing. So they've been an excellent um, source of help for people that are struggling. As have, um, there's a, a collaboration between the British Lung Foundation and Asthma UK, and they have a post-COVID hub, which also has uh, a support phone, phone line for respiratory nurses. And again, they've really understood um, the nature of the symptoms that people are having, the fact that it's relapsing and remitting, the fact that people are still short of breath months down the line. So those two uh, organisations have also been very, very helpful. No, oh, that's incredible. And well done, um, you know, to the people who are leading those organisations and those nurses. I, uh, that's fantastic. I didn't know about those. Yeah. Um, for anybody um, listening, do you have any other advice for people who, who are um, experiencing post-COVID issues at the moment, who are listening or watching to this? Do you have any wise words? <laughs> I think we have to sort of structure our approach to this uh, because it's a complex issue. I think we have to think about it from the point of view of the individual and the point of view of what society needs to do about it. From an individual point of view, I think we have to think about the clinical aspects first. So I think, you know, there's papers emerging that show that 78% of people uh, this is a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association. 78% uh, of people have had changes on cardiac MRI uh, and 60% had changes on cardiac MRI of myocarditis. Uh, and this was from 100 patients, two thirds of which were not hospitalized. And the, the findings were kind of unrelated to their initial severity of their disease. So the first thing we have to be clear about is that in some people there is going to be organic pathology and that we should, you know, if you're experiencing symptoms, you should seek medical help uh, and go through the process of good clinical medicine, uh, you know, and see a doctor who will take a history, examine you, and arrange appropriate investigations. I so think just to be clear there for viewers, Jake, because um, I'm conscious we can use language sometimes okay. that isn't always accessible. Um, yeah. I think, and I just want to check if I understand you, what you're saying is that people who may not have been hospitalised, who are experiencing what appear to be COVID-19 symptoms, may have underlying health problems and they need to be checked out. Is that what you're saying? They should be checked out even if they're not even if they haven't been admitted to hospital? Uh, you know, I think, I don't know about people who are asymptomatic, you know, because obviously they're, you know, if you gave that advice, that would mean that potentially the whole population would turn up and say, I need to be checked out. But I, I would, what I would say is that that study shows that uh, of a hundred people who definitely had COVID, so they were all positive cases, two thirds of them had never been to hospital 
and 60% uh, of them had evidence of inflammation of their heart on cardiac MRI. And we know that if that, if you have myocarditis, you shouldn't really be trying to exercise, things like that. So whilst the evidence is emerging, I would argue that it's important for people with symptoms that are concerning, like shortness of breath, chest pain, problems concentrating, that they should seek medical advice about those symptoms. And that, that's not to, to panic people, and it may be that their doctor uh, you know, can manage those symptoms in accordance with some of the guidelines that have come out this week, for example. But I think it's all part of making sure that there isn't something dangerous or treatable that can be easily treated and also to make sure that this isn't something that is non-COVID related, you know, because you, there's still non-COVID illness out there. So I think anyone with symptoms that's troubling them should should speak to a doctor. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's good advice. Um, we've covered um, an awful lot. And I think, you know, as we bring this podcast to a close, is, is there anything else that you'd like to say or that you would have liked to have talked about today that I haven't asked you about? Um, I think just to, to elaborate on the previous question about words of advice, you know, I think, yeah, the first step from an individual point of view is, is to get checked out medically. Um, but then I think it's to try and talk openly with friends and family about what you're going through. I think, uh, there is some potential stigma attached to this. I think, it's not as bad as I potentially thought that it might be to talk about this publicly. Um, there are lots of famous people who are talking about their symptoms with this. Uh, there are lots of doctors that are talking about their symptoms with this. So we've got politicians that are talking about their, uh, their problems with this. So I think the more that we talk about it, the more likely it is to be recognized as a problem that's affecting people and uh, the more likely it is that the steps needed to address the problem will be taken. So I would encourage people to talk to friends and family, find, find support from, from people going through the same things or from these organizations that I mentioned. And then also try to stay as, as positive as possible. And that's not to say that in a flippant kind of optimism at all costs type, type of way because it is a very difficult situation to be in but I think to try and uh, stay hopeful because of the uh, recoveries that we are hearing about from some people but also just to, to keep hope in the fact that you know I'm very convinced that one day uh, science will come up with a an answer for what's happening to these people I think as soon as we start recording this uh, objectively in epidemiological studies that might give us clues to the types of um, mechanisms going on and so on so i think eventually uh, we will get to the bottom of this that's my hope anyway yeah well those feel like wise words um, upon which to bring this to a close which is um, keep talking and stay hopeful um, We've covered an awful lot. Um, really, really grateful uh, 
to you for taking the time to chat with us today, Jake. Um, we also wish you a really speedy recovery, um, along with everybody else who's you know in the same boat as you. Um, just to reassure any viewers that the Encephalitis Society services remain unaffected. So if you do need any support or information, our teams are still at your service. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online and as always if you can support our work at this very challenging time please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate but most of all wash your hands keep your distance and stay safe everybody and we'll see you in the next podcast mm -hmm.